Well, we are starting a new uh, series today that marks a first for me in my nine years of being your pastor. In fact, I haven't uh, done this sort of thing since I was a college pastor going back to, I think, maybe 2005. Uh, I'm doing what's known as a topical series where uh, I'm addressing two specific topics together over the course of the next, I don't know, seven or eight weeks or so. And typically what I do, as you well know, I pick a book uh, of the Bible and work through it verse by verse. And I like to do that method that's called simply expository uh, preaching because the text picks the content and the text determines uh, which direction I'll go and it tends to keep me from getting stuck on my hobby horses or my pet peeves or, or, or whatever, even as it also means that sometimes uh, I, I'm forced to speak about issues that are controversial or uh, uncomfortable or areas where I'm just weak or unknowledgeable and so I have to really work to get the meaning. This is why I've put off, for example, uh, finishing the book of Exodus because trying to figure out how to preach through the uh, uh, directions on the temple or on the tabernacle are hard and I, I've really struggled on how best to do that. So anyway, this is a, a departure for me and I, I'm doing it because I think in our current uh, cultural climate, it's worth exploring the two topics uh, of the biblical doctrine of union with Christ together with the problem of the modern quest for identity. Really, union with Christ is, is the answer to the problem of identity. And what's encouraged me to do this is that I've recently done one talk versions of, of this series, first with a senior graduation night uh, down in Bruton uh, in the early part of May at First Press in Bruton, and then I, I revised that talk and did it again uh, at Fort Dale's baccalaureate service a couple weeks later. And then I revised it one more time and did it two weeks ago uh, or so at Presbytery for a bunch of pastors. And you know, each time I've had a, a pretty good response, and the talks have generated a lot of questions, especially among pastors who seem to be very concerned about the same issues I am. So this morning serves really as an introduction uh, to the series, and it's going to set us up, really kind of be a roadmap for the next seven or eight weeks. Our text, though, this morning is, is one of the verses uh, that summarizes the doctrine of union with Christ, and it's one, uh, I'm not going to say it's a theme verse, because I kind of hate theme verses, but it's going to be a verse uh, that I come back to again and again throughout the series. It's Galatians 2.20. So let me read it for us. This is Paul speaking. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let me pray for us as we go into it. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your Son, Jesus the Christ, who, as Paul tells us, and as the entire really trajectory of the Old Testament looks forward to, he indwells us, that we have become the temple of the living God. Lord, we have that as individuals, but we have that together as your people. And as this is something we do together right now in this moment, we pray that your spirit would be amongst us as your people. We pray that for every church in this town, and across the world, that your spirit would be present this morning, that we would grow in our knowledge and our love for your son, that he in turn would 
work in our hearts and our minds that we might follow after him wherever he leads. We pray all of this in his name through the power of the Spirit. Amen. Well, identity uh, is one of the defining issues, if not the defining issue of our day, or perhaps, ironically, it's, it's the inability uh, to define one's identity that's really at issue, at least in America. So, for example, you know, virtually every movie that Pixar, Disney, Star Wars, and Marvel has made centers on the main character trying to figure out who he or she is. And we always want uh, the origin story of how the hero uh, discovered her powers or how he came to grips with who he really is and, and that sort of stuff. There's all kinds of movies like this. I don't even need to name them, you know. And in that sense, though, if you think about it, Darth Vader and Elsa from Frozen are pretty much the same character and on the same quest. Both are orphans, both have anger and control issues, both are trying to figure out who they are, and in the end, they make peace with their families and communities and all is well despite their crimes against humanity. It's like what Taylor Swift said this past May at her graduation from NYU. I know it can be really overwhelming figuring out who to be and when, who you are now and how to act in order to get where you want to go. I have some good news, it's totally up to you. I also have some terrifying news, it's totally up to you. So if this is how reality works, that we define who we are, or we have uh, the burden of responsibility to discover deep within us who we truly are, then Taylor Swift is right. It's terrifying. It's terrifying. How can you ever know if you've really figured out who you are? How can you know you've got you right? It's why when I was doing college ministry, and really this starts back as a volunteer in the late 90s and going through the mid-2000s, students were paralyzed, paralyzed over decisions as wide-ranging as whether they were choosing the right major or the right person to marry. What if there is something or someone better just around the corner? What if this job or this couch I'm considering does not reflect who I really am. Now, nearly two decades later, people still look at furniture, expecting it to be an expression of who they really are, but it has gotten so much worse than that. How do I know if I'm really a man and not, say, a cat stuck in a man's body? And by the way, that's a real example. That's a real example I saw on Twitter, and it would be ridiculous or laughable if it wasn't an earnest question coming from someone in his 20s. And by the way, I'm not mocking that person. I'm not mocking that person at all. The existential crisis so many young people face makes Albert Camus look like a walk in the park. But a moment's reflection shows that you do not create your own reality or choose your own identity as if life is an elaborate version of picking a costume for Halloween. So, you know, I, I no more chose my name than I chose my skin color or my parents or my height or my gender or when I would start balding. So even as, as culturally everything is pushing us 
to believe and live as though we are individually wrapped in hermetically sealed humans who can cultivate who we are by way of which products we buy or, or friends we choose because you've got to cut the toxic people out of your life or feelings we have or political movements that fit with whatever our chosen identity of the moment is. We conservatives, we know better or so we tell ourselves. We aren't taken in you know, by the, the gender or sexual ideology or political correctness. We can see all this, this identity talk for the cosplay and LARPing that it really is. And for those of you who are over the age of uh, 30, uh, cosplay is short for costume play. LARPing is live action role playing. So what men used to do, uh, I guess you'd say the 1970s and 1980s with Civil War enactments now, Men of the same age go to conventions where they dress up as anime characters or their favorite superheroes or, or whatever it may be, and they act out whole scenes of movies or, or whatever they do. And in a certain sense, you know, that, that's right. That's right. You know, many conservatives in our circles don't fall for that, that kind of identity talk. No, we, we, tend to, we tend to mock it. We know what a man or a woman is, though truly, if we're being honest or if we're doing some real self-diagnosis, those same issues are deep within our ranks too. Even so, I, I think we, we fall for different yet related lies of identity. It's just that the ones we believe, the ones we fall for are socially acceptable to us and we often treat them as, as moral and, and right and sometimes even blessing them in God's name. Now, obviously, the problem of identity is the problem uh, this uh, series addresses, and I'm going to use Henry Nouwen's uh, rubric, his, his uh, famous five lies of identity that he, he did over a course of a, a series in the 1990s as a, really a way of just organizing our time in the structure for the sermon series. And these, these five lies, they overlap, uh, they all kind of inform one another, and, and I think they're, they're useful for getting a handle on the sorts of lies uh, we tend to believe. And at least three of them, maybe more, but at least three of them are versions of the sort of legalism I think Paul addresses in the book of Galatians. So here's the order in which I will take these lies. The first one is this, I am what I have or what I own. Number two, I am what I do. Number three, I am what people say about me. Number four, I am my worst moment. And then number five is I am my best moment. Now, as an aside, though, throughout this series, that issue of legalism is going to be popping up. And I considered doing just a whole separate sermon on that, but I, I'm not. Uh, and it's, it's, it's not quite the version... Uh, people typically assume, as in, the God loves me or will give me heaven if I'm a good person and keep his law, that version of legalism. Though that's, that's certainly how some people approach legalism. Uh, no, I think legalism is far more subtle than that. I think it's a problem for everyone. It's far more subtle than that. And you know, everyone, I think, deals with this, whether they're a Christian or non-Christian alike, both conservatives and liberals and everything across the board. And I'll come back to that in a moment. Now, that said, let me, I want to give you just a brief roadmap 
on these lies by having missioning them, I want to give you a roadmap today of where we're going to be going with them and, and just framing our time in the weeks to come. So let's go back to that first one. I am what I have or, or what I own. So quite simply, my worth and my value, really my identity is wrapped up in my possessions or wealth or even in things like my beauty or athletic talent or my intellect or, or something along those lines. The gifts that we have, you might say. So this is more than, than simple materialism, like I heard throughout the, the 80s when I was growing up, that just having things was, was bad. No, it's, it's, it's more than pursuing security or comfort like the worries facing Jesus' first century audience. You know, Jesus' audience actually worried if they would have enough food. They were anxious about that. That's in the Sermon on the They were anxious if they would have enough clothing or shelter. And I'm not saying that's not an issue in America. And I'm not saying that's not an issue in our county. I think it is. But in this church, it really isn't. And in our circles, this is really not something people typically worry about. So it's not the issue of whether we will have enough. It's rather we think our possessions, what we think our possessions or physical gifts will do for us in our social standing. So this lie happens when we look to these things to give us status or we think lack of status and we come to belief slogans like the clothes make the man. Second, I am what I do. And this might be the most difficult of all the lies and the one we most readily believe, though I think I am what I own is a close second. So for example, Jim Dunklin in the session we were talking about this this morning, the most common question when you're getting to know someone is, so what do you do? And what we realized is before they've asked that question, they've already, we all do this, we've already made an analysis of what they're worth by way of what they're dressed as, the clothing they have on, how they look. So immediately without a thought, we are judging people by, I am what I have, I am what I do. It's why, you know, people will, will say, you know, things like soccer is life, cheer is life, or we'll put salt life on the back of their vehicles. So it's, you know, I am what I do. Whatever that thing is, I do. That's who I am. So if I say, for example, tell me something about Michael Jordan that does not involve basketball in some way. You probably can't do it. I tried to do the exercise myself and I can't. Basketball is at the center of who Michael Jordan is. Michael Jordan is basketball and it is the only reason we care about him. Third, I am what people say about me. I am what people say about me. So if people say I am a good person, then I am a good person. If people say anything other than what I want them to say about me, if they have a critique, or can point out faults or disagree with my lifestyle, then by definition, uh, I'm gonna lose my, my cool. They are toxic and they need to be cut out from my life or as it is commonly referred to these days, they need to be canceled. This is why it is a curse, I think, to be popular when you are young. I think it is a curse to be popular when you are young. As any mature adult can see, like with celebrities or star athletes or politicians, it's the popular kids who are enslaved to the opinions of others. 
because they are dependent on what other people think of them in order to remain popular. And often, they will do whatever it takes to remain in the good graces of popular opinion. You know, this, like everything else in our culture, has been absolutely exacerbated by social media. Fourth, I am my worst moment. I am my worst moment. So that moment could be something that you did, some mistake you made, some sin you committed, some life-altering accident you caused that affected other people, or it could be something that someone did to you. It could be the sin someone committed against you, the lie that was told, the abuse that happened. It could be you were the drunk driver, or you were the one hit by the drunk driver. So for example, growing up, I knew of a man who accidentally hit a kid riding his bike and killed him. It was an accident. But still, how do you live with the reality that you not only took a child's life, but you took a parent's child? What's your identity then? Fifth, I am my best moment. What happens when you reach the pinnacle of success as you see it? What happens when you are the star of the football team your senior year, but then you graduate and your football career is over? Who are you when you are too old to be wearing your letterman's jacket, which, by the way, happens the day you graduate from high school? Who are you when nobody cares about your stupid success stories or what you did 20 or 30 years ago? Who are you when your so-called best moment are, are in the rear view and the only one looking at them is you? Now, what I like about what Henry Nouwen has done with these five lies is that they serve as a great self-assessment tool. They, they help bring to light how we so often exchange life with God for, for something else and how we, even as Christians, you know, just like the Tower of Babel, attempt to build a life. And identity is how we say it these days. But to attempt to build a life apart from God on our own terms. Now, as an aside, I struggle with all of these lies. All of these lies in varying degrees. Some more than others. And I suspect you probably do too. And if you were listening through them, you can hear how they overlap and how they inform each other, how you can be defined both by your worst moment and your best at the same time. Now, the way to overcoming these lies, as we're going to see over the course of the next seven to eight weeks, is not to try harder. It's not to try harder. In fact, you won't hear me say that throughout the series one time. And if I do, please call me on it. No, the way forward is learning about who you already are. In Christ, and like a child who has been adopted into a new family, growing in confidence that who God says you are is who you really are. And I think union with Christ is not merely an, an antidote to these lies, as if learning this doctrine is like a pill you swallow and you suddenly get better. No, union with Christ is shorthand for who God says you are, what He says your very being now is and it takes time it just takes time to grow into that relationship so consider what paul says in second corinthians 5 17. 
He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So if you belong to Jesus, then you are actually and truly united to him right now through the Spirit, and you've been given a new identity, really a whole new being in Christ. And Paul is not being figurative when he says you are in Christ. He's very much literal. So the, the same is true for his use of the phrase new creation. That's not a metaphor for some kind of spiritual enrichment. No, he actually means that you are waiting on the resurrection of your body. Even so, as you're doing that, you are already a new creation in Christ. And you are already participating in his life and in the life to come. And this life, this identity, is a gift. It's not your creation. It's not something you cultivate apart from God. And you do not define the terms of the arrangement. So being a Christian is not cosplay. It's not LARPing, right? It's not putting on a costume at Halloween. It's not one more outfit we wear alongside our other outfits. So as you know, many Christians think, you know, there's what you wear to the beach and what uh, you wear to the game and what you wear to the hunk camp and there's what you wear to church. And there's a whole different set of identities that go along with each of those roles and those places. No. That's how the world thinks. The world is playing at cosplay. No, when Paul speaks of putting on the new self in Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4, he's not talking about self-cultivation or LARPing. He means own who you already are in Christ everywhere you go. So you are no longer marked out as belonging to the world or to yourself. No, you are not your own, as the Heidelberg Catechism so wisely puts it. No, you belong body, heart, mind, soul, every last cell of your being to this God. But it's more than this. As Paul says, it is no longer you who lives as an isolated autonomous, self-defining individual, which, by the way, is a myth of modern society. No, it is Christ who lives in you. Paul doesn't merely belong to the triune God as though he was one of the many objects that God claims ownership of, though that's true. No, he's indwelled by God as a living temple. And again, that is not figurative language. It's not a metaphor. That's not a euphemism for self-cultivation. And this was not a, a voluntary arrangement as if belonging to Christ is like having a Netflix subscription that you can counsel, cancel whenever it suits your needs. As both Jesus and Paul understood, to live life on your own terms, to be self-made or self-defined, to pursue happiness as the goal of your life, as so many Americans, including American Christians do, it's death. It's death. No, if we understand Paul correctly in Galatians 2.20, we should read him as Grant McCaskill suggests we do. And by the way, that guy's works stand behind a lot of what I'm going to be saying. So if there's ever like a theological nugget or something, you're like, whoa, it's not me. It's Grant McCaskill. He's awesome. Right? But this is what he says. He writes, it is not a principle or an ideology or my desires that define me. It's a person. And it's no longer Paul but Paul in Christ. 
Paul in himself is a thing of the past. That Paul is gone. He no longer exists. No, he is Paul in Christ. That's his being. That's who he is. So if we take Paul seriously, and I think Paul, and we're going to see this in the weeks to come, Paul is simply taking passages like Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 36 seriously, then there is no you without God. And every attempt to live apart from God, or as people tend to put it today, to build an identity apart from God is death. And by the way, to try to build an identity at all is by definition to attempt to live apart from God. Thank you, Tower of Babel. It's why legalism is at the root of so many of these lies of identity. So for example, in Luke 18, when Jesus tells the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector praying, you know, we all know that the Pharisee is, is the one guilty of legalism, right? So Luke tells us that up front. So he writes, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. I'm assuming you know that, that, that parable. Who was the Pharisee trying to impress with his public prayer? Whose validation was he actually seeking? It wasn't God. He didn't care about God at all. No, he was using God as a means to get other people's approval. If he had known God, his prayer would have sounded like the tax collector's prayer, and he would have known that despite their obvious differences in social status that were real, they were on equal footing as humans before God. And that's how legalism typically works. The Pharisee wasn't trying to prove his worth to God. He was trying to prove his righteousness to other people. He wasn't trying to keep the law for the sake of eternal life. He was trying to keep it for the sake of people loving him. Now, you can build an identity that looks like Christianity, sounds like Christianity, but is actually rooted in the self with the same motivations as the self-righteous Twitter troll who polices pronouns. It's why contempt for the tax collector who actually knew God came so naturally to the Pharisee. See, these lies of identity encourage us to build a life apart from God, to see ourselves as our own creations, as if our identities are things we cultivate, and not as the gospel teaches, as Paul in Christ, as, as Rob in Christ, or as we will see us together in Christ. So nobody thinks owning a car makes them righteous in God's eyes. Nobody does that. Nobody thinks, God has to admit I'm pretty cool now. But it's not God's eyes we're after. Nobody thinks winning a trophy ensures that God loves us, despite whatever you know, spiritual acknowledgement we do in the end zone after we score. And by the way, Calvin brings this, Calvin Poole, brings this position up all the time. Why don't they do the same kind of celebration when they don't score? I don't mean the defensive player, I mean the offensive player, right? But it's not God's love we're pursuing. So as we move forward in this series, we're going to go deep with this, this fundamental biblical doctrine that is, it's so key. And how these lies, they work to undermine what God says about who we are. 
So I think it's, it's good to end then with the gospel. It's always good to end with the gospel. And I will close with the words from the Heidelberg Catechism that we use from time to time as our profession of faith. Listen to these wonderful words. They write, My only comfort in life and in death is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ by his Holy Spirit assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Christ is in you. You are in him. That is who you are. More in the weeks to come. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, the good news of the gospel is that our sins have been forgiven. That is the means, that is the lever by which we have access to the throne room. The Lord, you have gone so much deeper by giving us yourself in which you meant, you want to, you in fact do, indwell your people through your Son in the power of the Spirit. Thank you for this indwelling that never lets us go, that is forever with us. Thank you for this grace and this mercy, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.